You're listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, a new documentary follows the journey of Wyoming's Northern Arapaho tribe as they seek to bring home the remains of children who died at the Carlisle Indian Boarding School more than a century ago. We are exploring the history of America. It's about conquest, it's about colonization, we're talking assimilation. Plus, local Latinos observe Dia de los Muertos, or the Day of the Dead, in Jackson. They believe that it's a portal that opens and that spirits of your beloved ones come to visit you. But first, an ecology PhD student is in Jackson Hole this fall studying winter ticks and their effect on the local moose population. For data collection, he's getting help from some furry friends. KHOL's Will Walkie has a story on how the joint canine and human research might help wildlife managers better preserve one of Jackson Hole's most iconic species. Troy Kozer is walking in the brush next to the Snake River in Wilson, surveying the tips of vegetation. The thing he's looking for is about the size of the head of a pin, but that small organism can pack a big punch. There's uh, gonna be, you know, 100 to 200 on here. And you can imagine that when a moose is moving through, this is all like moose belly height. Like there, there's a ball there, there's a ball there. So they hit several of these little tiny balls at once. But then you get hundreds of larvae on you, and those hundreds of larvae, you know, they're, they're on for the rest of the year. That's what the local moose population has been dealing with for at least a few centuries. Kozer says when pioneers first came to Jackson Hole, they observed winter ticks, as well as moose, elk, and deer trying to rub the bugs off of them when they shed their coats in the spring. They're not having a good time. And you could think, like, if they're spending all that time rubbing, then that's less time eating, that's less time being vigilant. Right, There's, they're just like not happy, they're annoyed. And they've got other things to do. It's the hardest time of year for them. And tick populations might be growing, or at least having a different effect on moose as the climate changes in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. That's what Kozer's studying at Montana State University, and he's working with local biologists to figure out exactly how current climate projections, things like more rainfall, earlier snowmelt, and drought, might affect the unhealthy relationship ticks and moose currently have. We don't necessarily know what, like, how many ticks are bad and if hair loss really leads to, like, death or horrible outcomes for them. We just know it looks bad and we're trying to figure out how bad that bad is. But to accurately track ticks, Kozer needs to find them first, which isn't always an easy task with our limited human vision. That's where Frost comes in. He's like, there's a cage over there. I better go check that out. (laughs) Frost is a mixed-breed pooch whose day job is sniffing out invasive species around Jackson Hole. Amy Hurt is co-founder of the organization Working Dogs for Conservation, and she's helping train Frost to see if he can smell those small tick balls in the field. From the trainer perspective, the work is figuring out how to get the dog to be able to do this, and, and then measuring, like, okay, so they can do it to the best of their ability. Is that ability helpful enough to be put into use? On this recent Friday, Hurt and Kozer have set up a little obstacle course for Frost. There are plant clippings with tick balls on them in wire cages throughout the woods, as well as some cages without any bugs. The idea is to assess whether or not the dog can figure out which is which. 
he was starting to put his butt down um, as I click. When I click, I'm telling him that you're right. Hurt says Frost is getting better at approaching plants more gently and detecting tick scents from farther and farther away. Nobody's ever tried to see if dogs can sniff out winter ticks before, so there's a lot of trial and error. But even small signs of progress could have big impact. He knows tick odor, and he knows that he's most often going to find them on the tips of plants. So he's connecting two of the most important dots. If Frost shows he can be useful in the field, trainers can start taking him out for real to collect data. And though winter ticks will likely never be eradicated in Jackson, Kozer says it's important to understand the extent of the problem for local moose. Since they're endemic, for the most part, managers don't really want to know how to get rid of them. It's going to be mostly how much money should I devote to protecting our moose, given climate change and what we think will happen with the ticks. Kozer also says his research is shedding more light on just how much stress moose go through every day. From avoiding trucks on Highway 22, to navigating around livestock fencing, to putting up with tiny, blood-sucking parasites. Will Walkie, K2L News. November is Native American Heritage Month. One of the events planned in Jackson is a screening of the new documentary, Home from School, The Children of Carlisle. It follows the journey of the Northern Arapaho tribe from the Wind River Indian Reservation as they seek to bring home the remains of three children who died at a federal Indian boarding school in Pennsylvania more than a century ago. KHOL film critic Jeff Counts spoke to co-producer of the film, Sophie Barksdale, ahead of the screening at the Center for the Arts on Tuesday, November 9th. This is Jeff Counts, and you're listening to On Set on KHOL, Jackson Hole Community Radio. I'm joined today by Sophie Barksdale, co-producer of Home from School, The Children of Carlisle, a new film out from Caldera Productions. Sophie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. It's great to have you. And I saw this movie, I got an opportunity to see it last night, and there's a point made in the film about this story not being widely known outside of the culture it most affects. Talk a little bit about this movie and what the story is, actually. Sure. Look, I mean, I think at the heart of the film, we are exploring the history of America. It's about conquest. It's about um, colonization. We're talking assimilation. And um, sort of diving down into that, it's the story of the Arapaho tribe really attempting to bring children home from Carlisle Indian Industrial School um, that died there 100 years ago. Carlisle was the flagship Native American boarding school. At Carlisle, they were really stripped of their culture, their language, they had their hair cut, they were separated from other tribal members, so they were not able to speak to each other. Um, it's a history that doesn't really paint America in a beautiful light. It's quite out of sync, I think, with that sort of origin story that we hear about America. And so I think that's one of the reasons this story continues not to be told within the schools today. I mean, my son is not learning about it at school. But I think also, and, and the piece that I love the most about this film, is that underneath this story, underneath this history, the film is really about this hopefulness, this resilience, and the strength of the Arapaho tribe really pushing 
to get their children back. Let's talk about the tough stuff a little bit first. I do want to oh, get yeah. back to that hope that you just mentioned, because I think that's an important message in this movie. But I was struck, Sophie, watching this film by the big numbers that I'm forced to reckon with. Over 200 dead kids, a range of ages from infants to kids in their late 20s at this school. All of the train miles these kids had to travel from the, West, from the um, Wind River Range out to Pennsylvania. This is very much a story told through a Wyoming lens, but I get the sense that the team was trying to tell something more national in scope, right? Absolutely. The first tribes were the Oneida, I think, and the Apaches who were taken from um, Fort Marion. And, you know, they were pulled from all the tribes and they really targeted the war tribes, the ones that were in direct conflict with the government. And so the government really and very openly stipulated these are the these are the tribes we want to get those children into the schools because it's going to be a best behavior bond they will stop fighting us we're going to break these bonds with their families we're going to turn them into white people and we're not going to have to fight them anymore because they couldn't win otherwise you hinted at something before about breaking down the culture as a means towards getting these folks to submit and I remember this quote from the, from the film, but also from the press material around the film about kill the Indian, save the man. That seemed to be the operating principle of the US government back in the 1880s. But I feel like the film's trying to say that the legacy of that mindset is actually at least attempting to be turned into something more hopeful. How does that hope manifest itself in this story? And how does that journey from kill the man, save the Indian, make it all the way into 2017 when these incredible events are happening you know I mean Yufna says in the film you know Yufna Soldier Wolf really became our our star character I mean it's an absolute ensemble story it's an ensemble journey and um, it's very much a group effort but Yufna's family was key from the very beginning her grandfather wrote letters to the school to ask for little chief back her father wrote letters uncles and it got to the point where she was working as the director at the TIPO office, the Tribal Historic Preservation Office, and she said, right, I'm just going to get this done. This is something that her family had wanted her to push and others, you know, within the community that were relatives of the other two boys. And I think she had this vision to address the trauma to bring the trauma out into the open. I mean, there's a lot of things that are not spoken about on the reservation and there's a lot of things that are not spoken about in wider society. And she wanted to bring that out into the open, bring these boys home and start healing. Sophie, this is an incredible film. Everybody needs to know this story. I'm so glad they have an opportunity to. Thank you so much for being with me today and talking about this incredibly important film. Thank you so much for having me. The free screening of Home From School starts at 6.30 p.m. on Tuesday, November 9th at the Center for the Arts in Jackson, followed by a Q&A with the filmmakers and a representative from the Northern Arapaho tribe. The film will also premiere nationally on the PBS series Independent Lens on November 23rd. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm news director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. 
New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Mexican and Central American holiday, El Día de los Muertos, or the Day of the Dead, is observed each year on November 1st and 2nd. Coming up next, KHOL Spanish language correspondent Alicia Unger reports on a new way the tradition was celebrated in Jackson this year. First, we'll hear an interview with Unger in English about her reporting, followed by her full feature story in Spanish. Alicia, thank you so much for reporting the story. Oh, no, thank you for taking interest in this special holiday. Not for only for the Mexican people, but it's becoming a worldwide celebration. Let's talk about the celebration. I think a lot of people have heard of this holiday, the Day of the Dead, but can you tell us about its symbolism, its significance in Mexico? Yes, uh, the Mexican culture has a very close relationship with death. They don't believe that people die. They believe people live after death. So the spiritual world, that there is a spiritual world. And, and what they do in the, in the Day of the Dead, which is two days, they believe that it's a portal that opens and the spirits of your beloved ones comes to visit you. And they appreciate to come to earth, to come back to earth and find their favorite food, their favorite drink. So people do altars. They use uh, this uh, flower that is gold. We call it sempasuchit, and it has a very unique smell, which is believed to attract uh, the spirits, and the light will guide them. It's very, very spiritual celebration, very colorful. It's worldwide about now, and here in Jackson, They've been doing it for about 10 years, for what I understood. And for the first time this year, they did uh, something different. Uh, people was uh, walking around to different altars that 10 organizations set up. The Church of St. John's Presbyterian Church did this beautiful altar representing people who had passed in the community the museum representing the pioneers of this city. So it was very, very, very interesting celebration. Alicia, can I also ask you, you're from Mexico City. Yes. Did your family observe? Did you have an altar at home? Yes, actually, I do. A very small, I just put a candle and uh, some sempasuchil flower and or, or some candy for, uh, for my beloved ones or fruit. It's very small, but I, I try to, to do it often if I'm at home uh, in that period of time. If I'm not going to celebrate it at Mexico, <laughs> I do. I tend to do uh, my grandma, my father, and my father-in-law. That's a really beautiful tradition. Thank you so much for sharing some of your own you know, celebration with us and for reporting this story. Thank you. And, and again, thank you for taking the interest and cultural celebrations for Mexico that are bringing the entire community of Jackson together. All right, we will go now to your full story en español. Enjoy it. KHOL, Noticias en Español. Los saluda Alicia Anger. Día de los Muertos de México para el Mundo. 
en la capital de Tlaxcala, la celebración se llevó a cabo fusionando sus dos culturas, prehispánica y colonial. Al atardecer se disfrutó de la fiesta brava. Y al caer la noche, se vivieron los rituales al más allá. Simultáneamente, en el pueblo de Jackson, la comunidad latina y anglosajona se unieron para celebrar a sus seres queridos, quienes ya pasaron al plano astral. Karina, quien prefirió no dar su apellido, cuenta que lleva más de cinco años en el condado Teton y asegura no había tenido la oportunidad de celebrar el Día de los Muertos en Jackson. Había yo venido anteriormente, pero no en estas fechas, entonces es la primera vez que me toca. Enfatizando lo mucho que le gustó el altar de la Iglesia Episcopal de San John, ubicada en el corazón del pueblo. Ah, está muy bonito y me recuerda mucho a, pues, a México. Usan muchas cosas de México y pues sí, sí nos gusta mucho. Karina con su hija mía de cinco años recorrieron tomadas de la mano los diferentes altares que se establecieron en múltiples organizaciones en diferentes puntos de la ciudad. Este es el primer año en el que se hizo en este formato, en donde 10 organizaciones decidieron poner sus propios altares. Altares en los que, de acuerdo a Emily Gómez, representando a la organización 122, cada institución hizo honor a las ánimas de destacados personajes que los representan. Personajes relevantes en la historia de Jackson. Creo que la biblioteca también dedicó su altar a autores. Eh, las escuelas lo dedican a personajes ilustres, universidades también, bibliotecas. Creo que esa es la parte bonita de, del Día de Muertos, ¿no? Que, que se celebra como en el ámbito público pero sobre todo personal. Mi papá está aquí. Él es puertorriqueño, él estuvo en el ejército. Le llamaban Blanco, pero su nombre es José Luis. Murió muy joven, hace unos cinco años atrás. Tenía unos 55, 56 años de cáncer. So. Para Anastasia Cruz, originaria de Puerto Rico, comenta esta es una ceremonia muy especial al conocer por primera vez el Día de los Muertos y poder participar en la celebración colocando la fotografía de su padre en el altar. Me encanta poder verlo aquí en el trabajo, <risa> ver su, su cara y su sonrisa. Y cuéntame, ¿le trajiste algo que le gustara a él? ¿Sabes que la creencia es que vendrá en estos días? <risa> sí, chocolate, stickers. <risa> Dejé el stickers para él y en verdad a él le, le, encantó, le encantó la, la, la cultura mexicana. Durante el recorrido a cada ofrenda, Gómez explica las personas tuvieron la oportunidad de estampar una página al estilo lotería, mejor conocida aquí como bingo. Se decidió que ibas a ir a cada altar y a que te sellaran esta, este cartón de bingo para luego entregarlo y, y participar en una rifa. La comida no podía faltar para los visitantes que llegaron hasta el altar de Guantuenitú. Ofrecer alimentos es algo que se hace tradicionalmente en México, además de que pues, ya tenemos un banco de alimentos que es el Jackson Covered. Entonces sentimos que queríamos seguir brindando ese aspecto de la celebración, entonces entregar algo simbólico a las personas que, que nos visitaban y pues es, se, se decidió hacer pozole. No, no lo he probado. Mi esposo me dejó unos pedazos de patitas, <risa> patitas de cerdo y es el parte favorito mío, en verdad. <risa> Mientras que para los pequeños que comienzan a conocer la tradición, la atracción es otra. ¿Qué más te gusta? Eh, ¿Los dulces? Uh -huh. <risa> y así, al final del colorido recorrido, la pequeña mía aprendió el significado de esta celebración. Eh, no, 
Alicia Anger, KHOL, Noticias en Español. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this week. Monday marked the beginning of open enrollment season. That means now is the time to purchase, update, or renew health insurance coverage for next year through the Affordable Care Act marketplace. According to Rob Woodson, an independent provider based in Wilson, a few changes made to the federal health care system earlier this year may make it easier for Wyoming residents to save money on their insurance. For instance, costs are now capped based on income for individuals making less than a certain percentage of the federal poverty level. So they'll pay more, no, no more than 8.5% of their uh, income for a benchmark 2022 plan. And this is huge and welcome news for Wyoming residents that purchase their own insurance. Woodson also says Wyoming historically has some of the highest insurance premiums in the nation. Open enrollment allows folks to survey their options, and that could be particularly helpful in Teton County, where many people don't qualify for coverage through their employers. If you've been thinking about adding a pet to your home, look no further than the Teton Valley Community Animal Shelter. Capacity at the Drake Shelter is getting high, and fosters are needed for both cats and dogs. Michael West manages the shelter, and he says one factor, more than any other, is driving the current uptick in animal surrenders. In our particular case, like in Jackson for years, uh, we're seeing it that it's more related to people losing their homes and having transitional home issues. West says the shelter took in about six animals just in the last couple of weeks, all due to human owners losing their housing. There's now a variety of older cats and dogs, as well as kittens, who could use temporary homes. The shelter covers all medical bills while animals are being fostered, but temporary caretakers are asked to purchase their own pet food if possible. Applications and photos of adoptable pets are available at tvshelter.org. Another major anti-vaccine mandate bill failed to pass the Wyoming State Senate Wednesday. It would have prohibited businesses from requiring that their employees are vaccinated against COVID-19, allowed parents of public school children to opt their kids out of mask or inoculation requirements, and allocated $10 million of public funds toward challenging federal mandates in court, among other things. Democratic State Senator Chris Rothfuss of Laramie said one of the reasons he opposed the bill was that he felt it ignores those who want to feel safe at their jobs, schools, or in public places. So this is not electing for individual rights. This is choosing winners on who gets their rights respected, on who gets to have their constitutional rights validated and upheld while casting aside those that feel different. Others call the measure anti-business because it puts employers in a bind where they're either breaking state or federal law no matter what. Now, just one COVID-related bill remains in the state's special lawmaking session against President Joe Biden's mandates. But it's more of a declaration opposing federal orders, according to the Casper Star Tribune, and has almost zero legal teeth against federal laws. Also on Wednesday, a handful of locals protested, quote, forced mandates from the government at the Jackson Town Square. 
One person who participated, Elisa Sansusi, says she lost her job when her employer decided to implement a policy requiring vaccines among his workforce. So I did just leave. You know, I didn't push anything. Um, and I understand he's doing what he feels is best for his business, um, but it's just really unfortunate. Sansusi says there are plenty of other jobs in the Valley that she can find, but she also worries about others who aren't able to risk unemployment. The Teton County Board of Commissioners will be hearing a COVID update and debating local orders in a few weeks. But local health officials continue to reiterate the importance of face coverings and vaccines in keeping coronavirus case and death numbers down. Finally, the Thanksgiving play, a drama exploring the meaning of Thanksgiving, opens at the Center for the Arts this week. The play is a satire, and it critiques uber-wokeness and the erasure of Native American voices from storytelling, according to director of the production, Edgar Landa. There's something about humor and comedy that allows the, uh, things to impact in a different way that maybe we can receive it in a different way. And so I hope the audience walks away thinking about, ah, huh, what, what does Thanksgiving mean? Why do I keep doing the same thing over and over? Is that useful? Or can I at least begin to have a different way of thinking about it? The play opens this Friday at 7 p.m. and is put on by the Off Square Theatre Company. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. Subscribe now to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also help us spread the word about the show by leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. <laughs>